Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. In the November-December issue, Nick Pinkerton dives into the heady atmosphere of campus film societies and discusses their importance to future filmmakers, exhibitors, programmers, critics, academics, and cinephiles. Quote, It was where writers learned to exhort or condemn, publishing programming notes or even their own magazines. It was where film lovers argued and proselytized, where they shaped their own taste and that of others, programming with, at most, minimal input from a faculty advisor. End quote. I was joined by... Dave Kerr, curator at the Museum of Modern Art, longtime film critic, just published a collection of my reviews uh, with the University of Chicago Press called Movies That Mattered. Jim Hoberman, long time, maybe still somewhat <laughs> film critic, working on an interminable book about uh, the 1980s. And... Nick Pinkerton, film comment regular and uh, author of Zero Books. To discuss their memories from their respective film societies. Here's our conversation. Nick, what prompted you to write that feature? Well, I have to say this was not one that sprang full grown out of me. As I recall, it was born of a little back and forth with uh, Mr. Nicholas Rapold. Mm -hmm. But once the idea kind of took hold, I found it was something, you know, very much in my wheelhouse. I'm always interested in going into the distribution end of things. And it wound up, I think, feeling more relevant than I might have initially thought because of the general sense of a catastrophe in the existing distribution model. Yeah. So to look back to these amateur distribution circuits and to dig into that a little bit, uh, wound up feeling like something more than an exercise in nostalgia. And we're actually going to indulge in a lot of nostalgia today, uh, unabashedly, mm -hmm. because we have two people who rose through the ranks. Well, three, I guess. Very old people. Well, hey, I was part of mine, too. I was on the Bijou Board of Directors for, like, two years. And... Um, yeah, establish that cred. Yeah. <laughs> Today, I thought it would be interesting to sort of hear interesting, funny, uh, maybe a little soused uh, stories from that time, because it was this way for people who loved movies in places where it was hard to see anything but boring Hollywood or nothing at all, to see international art house independent films for a really long time. And even through, you know, the first couple waves of the home video revolution. Dave, could you talk about your experiences yeah. with your film well, society? Well, it was really key to me. I came up in the early 70s at a time when film studies were just unheard of in universities. And uh, that was a great thing. You uh, could really follow your enthusiasms. There were no adults in the room telling you what you should watch and what you should think of it. And just burrowing your way through this mass of stuff. Uh, Totally self-directed. I mean, there was no uh, uh, faculty supervision, no interest, really. So we would read the magazines. We would read the, you know, cahier and stumble through it and figure out what we should be watching that week. And it was a really uh, exciting time. And you could really self 
educate in a way that I, I don't know if it's possible anymore. Where'd the budget come from? Well, it was a, a shrewd balance. Uh, we ran, I think, five nights a week. This is a doc films at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And the weekends were for making money. So we would have whatever big Hollywood film had just been released by the non-theatrical distributors. You know, the Exorcist, I remember showing. Uh, and at a dollar a head, you could fill up the big hall a couple of times and pull in, you know, eight or 900 bucks. And we would use that money to finance the programs during the week, far more esoteric and weird and wonderful things. And it kind of evened out in the end. So nice system. Yeah. What were some of the more memorable things that you showed during the week? Well, this is kind of the heroic days of auteurism, where it was uh, still controversial to show Hitchcock and Ford. Mm. You know, people were freaked out by that. You know, How can you show this commercial garbage? You know, what's <laughs> wrong with you people? You know, show some Ingmar Bergman movies, for God's sake. But uh, particularly those of us in that particular film society, just I think we relished the battle. You know, there was a real sense of being uh, moral crusaders, that we had seen the truth and the light, and we're <laughs> going to bring it to the masses. To me, a really exciting, interesting time. And I, you know, I miss having disagreements about things. There's so little you can disagree about these days. <laughs> it's pretty much, it's good, yeah, or it's not, yeah, and uh, let's move on, but having a good fight about Douglas Sirk or something, that was that was very interesting. Oh, yeah. You found out what you thought about things that way. Could you talk through that a bit more? Because I think, I think you're touching on something really important where we currently, we live in like a feast or famine, hot or cold media environment. Some of that is fueled by Twitter. Some of that in other social media. Some of that is fueled by just getting attention in a, in a world where there's always a crisis happening. Would those sorts of discussions happen before you programmed the films? Or like, would you have discussions after or sort of how were, how were things yes. hashed out, let's uh, say? Really both. We would have a, a programming meeting once a quarter. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone in the group, which was probably 30, 40 people, just sit around and try to hammer it out, you know, reach some uh, common sense of what we wanted to show that month. And you'd usually, you know, have a genre series, have a couple of director series. Yeah, depending on uh, what uh, Robin Wood had written that month or what was in Cahiers or Movie Magazine was very influential then. So if you wanted to do Richard Fleischer one month, because no one had ever seen any Richard Fleischer movies, let's see what these are like. Mm -hmm. And really still just getting to see all the Howard Hawks films, all the John Ford films, all the Alfred Hitchcock films, that was not... Uh, something that people were doing then, and this was possible in a college setting in a way that uh, even you know, MoMA was doing a little of that, mm-hmm. but you know, outside of New York City, nothing, nothing. Yeah. And Jim, is this more or less your experience, or is it? This seems so much more organized than, <laughs> than my experience. I mean, um, for me, the... Um, the Harper College Film Society, or I guess later the SUNY Binghamton Film Society, was a sort of means to an end. I mean, um, I saw a lot of movies when I was in high school. I mean, it was like, you know, the great advantage of like living in New York and going to a high school that was on triple session. So I was out at 1230, done for the day. I could, you know, take the subway into the city. I could see all sorts of things. And then to go from that to Binghamton, was a kind of starvation mm. diet. So 
I got involved in the in the film society. It was much more modest than um, what Dave had at the University of Chicago. This is also a little earlier, so there are even fewer film courses. There weren't any, and I got involved mainly. You know, I was mainly interested in in, in looking at things that I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. It was it was completely uh, solipsist. I didn't really think about the audience at all, and I feel like I subjected the audience to uh, some fairly arduous programs. I mean, of course, this was a state university, so it was socialism. We had, Mm -hmm. you know, the money came in somehow from some student affairs, and we didn't have to worry about about making money. So Mm -hmm. I remember programming a a double bill of uh, Metropolis and Alphaville. And this was like crushing to this, you know, (laughs) you don't want to say it was a big theater. I mean, people did come out for various things, you know, for Alan, Renee, and so on. But this was a bit much. But um, I didn't really care because I wanted to see them. And um, it also gave me the opportunity to write notes, mm-hmm. which probably, you know, people crumpled up and, like, left under the seats. But it didn't matter. It was like that meant something to um, to me. Something that I thought of when I was out of school and sort of, bumming around New York, I got involved in a film program. It's not exactly a college film society, but it was it was similar because uh, this was at a, a sort of a rundown performance space on the, on the west side that a guy that I knew from college was somehow programming, and it was mainly dance and some other things. But there was some money for films. And so this was the point in which, you know, I just was programming Fuller and Cirque. I mean, at our film society, we didn't take anything above expressive esoteric, even the far side of paradise <laughs> in the Saris paint. That was too, that was too square, you know, mm-hmm. so that Fuller and Cirque. And I remember for some reason, getting these things from budget films. I mean, you could rent films for like $10 yeah. and, um, but you couldn't advertise them. So when huh. we did the Cirque thing, we said something like a series of films, very popular in um, old folks, you know, in, in retirement homes and mental hospitals, which turned out to be true. That's what the distributor told us at the Cirque Films. <laughs> that's where their audience was. Lots of Rock Hudson. We didn't use the, oh, yeah. the name. But, you know, like the Cirque people, so we took out a tiny little ad in The Voice, and the Cirque people showed up. Mm. I mean, all 15 of them, they, they were there for that. Wow. So Your undergrad experience was also really shaped by... Um, Ken Jacobs. That was. Like I was the, like, I was like, how could I not remember that? That name? was like the last year that I was there, and then a period that I put in as a super senior. Yeah. But most of my experience of the film society was pre mm-hmm. Ken Jacobs. But we had a very strong avant-garde orientation, which is how he got there. Which was, again, that was something that uh, that I was interested in, and and so were a couple of other people, and missed mm-hmm. in Binghamton. But I remember, you know, we got like a big thing. Shirley Clark came up with a Portrait of Jason. That was like a huge event mm-hmm. and she got into a big argument with people and it was that was very exciting and i guess did you use a similar format where there was a discussion period afterwards or was it kind of more like a f- just no hang out discuss- in the lobby <laughs> no discussion <laughs> i mean no formal discussion right okay no, no, i mean there, we had things to say but no formal discussion also there were these social clubs you couldn't have mm-hmm. have france and um uh, the state university but they had social clubs and they would take care of renting you know the commercial films. I mean, they they so that was they they cornered the market on that. Mm. When either of you were there, I mean, you really didn't have any interaction with you know studios for prints. It was more like these people who sort of just had 
was it like collectors or these sort of no, like were, smaller these foods? No, no, just they, these Nick weird... mentions them all: peppercorn yeah. and worms. Non-theatrical and... <laughs> distribution. It yeah. was a, it was a thing back then. Budget yeah. films. There you go. Audio Brandon. That was the classy one. Tom Brandon, who was a yeah. A socially conscious filmmaker who got into 16 millimeter to get movies to the people and ended up yeah. uh, distributing tons and tons of stuff. The um, early years of New Line Cinema started out as a 16 millimeter distro house mm. with, I think, the John Waters pictures and a handful of other things. And yeah, there were dozens upon dozens, some studio affiliated, some independent, some real. Uh, Real fly-by-night operations uh, out of somebody's apartment, but yeah, there was a, a vast network of these sixteen-millimeter distros that, other than a handful, most of which are experimental, avant-garde affiliated, are mostly all disbanded at mm -hmm. this point. And why is that? Because who's renting sixteen-millimeter prints? Yeah, I mean, I. I started in an undergraduate production program in 1999 and we were still renting and projecting 16 millimeter in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Indeed, I was the projectionist at Wright State University, but I have to imagine that was the very, very, very tail end of that sort of thing happening. Mm -hmm. To go to the interpersonal, don't you remember the issues with 16-millimeter at the Cooper Union? I mean, of course, but I mean, yeah. that was more... I mean, I'm just I'm just asking this so people... So the rubes... Ah. Um, but, um, no, but I, yeah, I mean, I remember when I was in college a few years after you, they would show prints of certain films. I remember watching a 16-millimeter print of Blonde Venus... And the teacher saying, it's really important that we watch this on film. And if you want to know why, you can come talk to me after class. <laughs> um, but the universities also hold vast amounts of prints. So it's interesting to hear that you guys never, you, you were sort of dealing with these um, operations. It was a big business. This wasn't just universities. It was gyms at hospitals, army bases, mm -hmm. cruise ships. Um, into television as well. That was a big part. Well, of that's where a lot of the 16 prints yeah. were yeah. made for, for television distribution. Mm -hmm. And uh, those would fall into the non-theatrical market at some point. Universal had a big operation based around their TV syndication. And basically you could rent the same prints that they were then renting to television stations. So as a result, just a lot of stuff got printed up and made available that way that didn't have any real commercial reason to exist. Because they were not renting uh, When Tomorrow Comes more than once every five years. But there was a good 16-millimeter print of it because they would sell it to TV. Let me ask you something. Did you do your own projecting? I did quite a bit, yeah. We know we have well, this is something, rotating this is, staff. This is an interesting you know, footnote. This is something that we all did. Mm -hmm. And this was, was a source of... Uh, of, of income as it, you know, or it could be as an undergraduate. It was like a work study yeah. job, which yeah. clearly no longer. Projected for Roger exists. Ebert's class. Is a... And oh. I projected for Andrew <laughs> yes. Sarris. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I projected for Jim. Oh. So, <laughs> so the circle is closed. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny. Um, no, so what, what sorts of films would Roger show? Roger was kind of square. What can I tell you? <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. Citizen, Citizen Kane over and over really? and over. Oh yeah. my God. He had some crazy theories about Citizen Kane, which yeah. I heard many times. I remember my favorite projection experience was last year at Marion Bad, 
which came on three 1,600-foot reels. So I'm up in the booth. It wasn't a booth. It was the balcony of the auditorium. Mm -hmm. And I put it on. Great. You know, 1,600 reel runs out. Switch over. Second 1,600-foot reel. The end comes up. I've got a reel left over. (laughs) (laughs) Now I have to make the decision. Do I tell people I just showed the movie out of order, which no one noticed, and there's another 40 minutes to go? (laughs) Or do I quietly slink away into the night? Well, I I fessed up and said, folks, there's another reel up here. If you want to stick around and see it. And it was a satisfying experience for everybody. Mm, I think, you know, Renee probably would have approved of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This is is a point that... uh, we struck on when we were talking, Dave, is that you mentioned that there were more than a handful of titles that you came across uh, at campus film societies, either at University of Chicago or Northwestern, that you did not see for years, if not decades afterwards. And this idea that with any kind of format jump, be it from 16 to VHS, be it from VHS to DVD Blu-ray, that titles fall in the cracks in between, and that it was your feeling that in some ways the period that you came up in maybe had some opportunities to see things that were superior to what we have today and the theoretically everything available at all times always era right. which yeah. which was interesting I mean, there to were me. fewer things to be available you got mm. to remember it was closer in time to those films of the 30s and 40s and 50s so you know they were still more in the national consciousness than they probably are now but um yeah, I think that's uh, true. I mean, certainly if you were interested in 50s films, you could see a lot of stuff that's now very difficult to see, not really distributed on DVD, never on TCM, uh, just too sleazy, too disreputable, too marginal, but it was all out on 16 millimeter. Do you really think it is a reputation question, or is it just simply that rights lapse, or they don't feel like there's a market necessarily for these things? Yeah, well, it was easy to say, see all the films of Anthony Mann. Mm-hmm because Universal had these 16-millimeter prints sitting around. And now maybe you can see three or four Anthony Mann on Blu-ray, and they're really much better copies than anything we had back then. Mm -hmm. But to see his minor stuff, it's it's kind of difficult. You really can't get your hands on those. One thing that, that struck me, not at Binghamton, but when I went to other visited other schools, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of Berkeley, but this was also true at the University of Wisconsin. It maybe was true in in Chicago, too, when there were multiple film societies. It was like political parties. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was was truly incredible, that there would be these warring factions with their own ideology and so on. And, of course, in Berkeley, you had some that were very political and some that were completely auteurist and some that were uh, into into French films and so on. But still, they were competing for the same, uh, the same audience, and it was pretty fierce. What really distinguishes the period we're talking about from the present day is not that the film society per se has completely evaporated. The feeling of film history being sort of ambiently available to young people and the possibility that people who were attending these screenings were walking in not knowing precisely what they were getting into Mm -hmm. and maybe having a revelatory experience, maybe being completely 
disgusted or bored by what they saw, but the idea that you could still trip over film history, which I think is largely lost today when our viewing habits are molded by algorithms and where it's really, really hard to get outside of your own taste without making an active effort to do so. If you like this, you'll like the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the boredom factor, in a sense, that, I mean, there wasn't a hell of a lot to do, yeah. you know, on, on campus. I mean, people didn't have TVs, let alone uh, the internet. I mean, movies were the supreme art form or time waster I mean, when you were uh, on campus. One of the things that occurred to me in the course of researching and writing this piece is just how much of the infrastructure for film culture in the United States that we have now in terms of personnel and in terms of institution, how much of that was built up during this period. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that you know, in many ways, we really are still operating in the framework that was established during this, during the high heady heyday of campus film culture. And uh, as the abiding concern for anybody who's in programming, for anybody who is, you know, in any way concerned with this thing called film culture is like, how do we restock the ranks? How do, how do we, uh, how do we refire enthusiasm? This, I think, is where the phenomenon of the campus film society has something to to give us in 2017 yeah absolutely i mean um the bijou where i saw a lot of films and sat on the board and maybe didn't do as much as i should have um because i was a dumb 18 19 20 year old uh where where was this this is at the university of iowa Mm -hmm. as i said before this was post dvd DVDs were well established. This was back when Netflix was a cool thing where you could rent DVDs from. There were still physical blockbuster stores all over the place. We had sort of like a quiet Saturday night retro series, which uh, that was all on DVD. And that was sort of like we couldn't really advertise it too much because, you know, the, the studios would get a little mad. The theater showed mostly independent new releases. But if you go to any college orientation week, everyone's trying to grab your attention. Everyone's trying to say, hey, please join our activity. You know, like, join this, join that. And I don't feel like um, the virtue of having nothing else to do. <laughs> you know, movies movies can't always compete with something that's where you can get drunk and maybe hook up with somebody. Maybe it's, movies can't always do that. But you sometimes can do that they at can. The movies. But you can do that at the movies. And I, you know, maybe they should push that more. I don't know. See an old movie, <laughs> meet a new person. But I mean, also looking across at uh, these two distinguished gentlemen, it seems to me that the the period benefits greatly by the fact that you have actual causes, actual yeah. banners to rally around. Yeah, Dave, for you, I think it's that you know that tourist banner to to get behind oh yeah yeah which certainly is important to you as well jim but also the sort of new american cinema so called and the avant-garde experimental world and you know you you can't you can't refight those battles once mm-hmm. the once the field has been carried yeah. i wonder cuz i'm reading most the internet film coverage i see is so star oriented now which is sort of the thing that we were fighting against at the time was more recognition for directors, 
more of a sense of how films are actually made and not just made up by people who are expressing their actorly personalities. Mm -hmm. And so much of film Twitter seems to me to be a celebration, that kind of old fan culture. Yeah, it's gross. uh, (laughs) That auteurism in a way uh, swept aside, but now it's it's coming back and I, I don't know why. The culture is cyclical. We just live on some weird, horrible hamster wheel of culture, I feel like sometimes. But yeah, it is well, it's very true. Also out in the in the larger culture, if there is if we could use that term. Mm-hmm. I mean people still if they if you if you mention a movie, they the first thing they ask you is who's in it. You know, so that that the educated or tourist point of view was it was always that of a of a militant minority, you know. And um uh, other positions maybe even even more so. I just think it's 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 kind of interesting that people are talking about movies at all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's and if they're talking about old ones, that's even even uh, uh, more incredible. You have you have such a sad look on your face. <laughs> You're just like ready to shatter it into pieces. But no, I agree. No. I mean, it's not that's not a wrong way to feel. That's pro- that's the right way to feel. That's why we're here. I want I want to float something that Fred Camper kind of broached when I when I spoke to him and it's interesting with regards to talking about experimental film which has so much fallen under institutional umbrellas now I mean it it is in the United States the province of CalArts and Bard and a handful of other recognizable kind of university ateliers the point to which he spoke was this idea that the unique strength and vivacity of the campus film society sprang from the fact that it was born out of amateur enthusiasm and that through the years the increasing institutionalization and the appearance of these film studies programs that the campus film society was taking the place of Mm -hmm. has sapped the energy and that that essential like amateur amour is is the thing that's gone missing with the institutionalization yeah i mean i think that there there still are you know people who show movies in in lofts and micro micro mm-hmm. cinemas in 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 brooklyn that's that still does exist but it doesn't have the same sense of um, historical inevitability that's that's what i think is you know is 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 missing you know and that's that you knew that i mean you knew that john ford was was destined to be recognized as a, as a great american artist you know i did but i never thought he would go into eclipse like he is ah, okay but it's a, what i'm saying is that you had the sense of inevitability yeah i mean i thought they'd be showing stan brackage films you know with the cinema one and the cinema two not not really but you know, I mean, it's it's there was the sense that that uh, you were, you know, in the vanguard of in some historical vanguard. And that's it's it's very hard to maintain that now. Yeah. With regard to your point, Nick, there was more than once where I was assigned to go watch a movie at the Bijou in a in a film studies class, mm-hmm. because I think the again, I think people were just really glad that they had students to talk to. And that the students would be engaged and want to see things. And like, you do need to see the new Lucrecia Martel to participate in this world cinema class. And this isn't going to be just sort of an isolated film is just what you watch at home or in a screening room 
of the building we're taking this class in. It is really sad that, I mean, aside from the different poles, I guess, why do you feel like it sort of slid out of fashion as something that you could sort of plant your flag on? Well, I think what, what uh, Nick was talking about is, is the case that certain things became institutionalized. And when, when, there, were, when there were no um, cinema studies programs, it was, you know, you had gone beyond the academy. You, mm. but just, by, just by being interested in this, you had gone beyond, you know, like these uh, uh, professors in the whole, you know, tedious academic world. But, you know, in the, in the end, that world provided, you know, a refuge, you know, like it or not. I mean, that's, you know, uh, what, what we have. You know, I, I don't see that as, as bad or good. I just see it as like time marches on. That's As we're moving away from self-contained 90-minute, two-hour narratives and into these longer forms, uh, people just kind of losing touch with uh, the formal qualities that those films had. They're looking at different things when they look at a long-form television show. You know, to an old goat like me, a lot of that stuff looks like pictures of people talking, and I just don't, you know, I don't like it that much. <laughs> I like my old stuff, which had, you know, mise-en-scene in it and, and that kind of thing. But it is, yeah, it's it's uh, it's nothing you want to fight. This is just a change that happens. Uh, there's no reason to think that 90-minute self-contained narratives are any kind of permanent, eternal form. You know, that's going to cycle out. Something else is going to cycle in. That's the way the world is, you know, so we go with it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Dave, you're like digging up this stuff, you know, getting these things, showing, putting them out yeah. there and so on. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it's still very exciting because I think uh -huh. there is so yeah. much of that classical period that hasn't been explored. Yeah. And you, there's amazing things you can turn up with very little effort, just taking a look. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting. I mean, the whole thing with film societies that and and whatever exists now, um, you know, at, around the margins, is important because it's when things grow up outside of institutions. It's that's by its nature, you know, uh, dynamic and um, forward moving. I mean, I think one of the things that very much attracted me to the subject is. I find myself thinking a lot about how do you perpetuate this thing called film culture in the absence of brick and mortar meeting places mm -hmm. where you can engage in this sort of transmission of passion of knowledge. Uh, and it doesn't, it's not limited by any stretch of the imagination to the campus film society. It can go for, you know, the neighborhood rep house, which many small to medium-sized cities were up until not that terribly long ago able to maintain. It can go for the video store, which has also gone the way of the dodo. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a real point of concern. Does this culture perpetuate itself in the absence of those things? Is right. talking to people on the internet actually sufficient to keep this cord stringing along yeah and i have i have grave doubts about that me too <laughs> uh, it's weird because there there are definitely among people who are trying to participate in the, the conversation or are participating that are trying to bring this militancy to it and speak in absolutes and sort of plant their flag in places and it's usually it's really boring 
or willfully misunderstood. But such is life, I guess. Do you guys want to talk about less depressing things? Do you want to talk about like the best? The best screening. <laughs> I feel like this is such a like this is like turning into like a sad moratorium. No, no, no. I don't know. I mean, I you know, I it's it's crazy. I see the the whole film society thing as you know, in, in my experience, it was it was great. It was mm -hmm. you know, and, and and I I do feel that it um, continues in some in some ways, and I do think that having a um, uh, at physical audiences, I mean that's significant, and it's not just something that is is an issue for movies. I mean, it's you know, I mean this is tangential, but um, it was really fun when 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 newspapers had newsrooms when that was yeah. like a place that you you went. You know, I mean, am, am I right? I mean, it was you know, and at a certain point, yes, you're right, Jim. You know, <laughs> everybody, you know, people began like filing from home over the over the internet it's you know and, and that and that's you know not even talking about the fact that people weren't buying newspapers anymore so i, I think that you know I, I you know constituting an audience is a real issue and and i, I don't think it's merely a, a matter of pining for the good old days but knowing in my own life having the ability not only to be able to you know, have access to films in different ways, but having the interpersonal relationships that came out of that, mm -hmm. the friendships formed out of that, all things that have been enormously valuable to me and you know kept me together to one degree or another and yeah. put me here for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of hoping that a coming generation can have some kind of equivalent experience to that. Not the exact same experience, because right. that's certainly not going to happen, but knowing the value that that had for me, and I think that, that it had for both uh, Jim and Dave here, and wanting that to you know, be able to perpetuate itself. But maybe there is something like inherently fogeyish about that. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, it's been my experience teaching that that there are always students who are to a certain degree self-educated and strongly motivated who you know there is there are still cinephiles it still it exists and i'm not you know it's sort of against all odds which makes it even better mm -hmm. that it's it's even more irrational because it was no big deal to be a cinephile in 1968 i mean even time magazine you know was running stories about the movie generation and so i mean that was natural so that still exists I always say, make the make the prices cheaper, you know, and they will come. But before we close, maybe can we seriously though? Can we say, could you just bring <laughs> back like a nice memory, like a in, like a very specific sort of a thing? Oh my God, I was so glad I experienced that, and I could have only experienced that at my campus film society. Well, I remember having a lot of arguments with people who had wandered in, basically off the street, oh, okay. and to be confronted with Sam Fuller or Douglas Sir. And just they did not know what the hell this stuff was, uh, and people would get very angry. Uh, why are you showing me imitation of life? You know what is this garbage? And you would try to explain it to them, and in the course of trying to explain it to them, uh, you would figure out why you liked it yourself. So that was a very positive experience and kind of an adrenaline pumping experience, mm -hmm. and uh, you were really interacting and, and feel like it was a serious thing. You know, a real interchange had, had happened around moments like that why would people object can you sort of help contextualize that 
Like, why would why was somebody upset to see Imitation of Life? Well, you're telling them that a, a genre that they held in total contempt in women's pictures, melodramas, was mm. worth paying attention to. And people just couldn't see that then. You know, that was... I've looked at the schedule of this great melodrama series you've got coming up uh, at the Film Society. Mm -hmm. A lot of that stuff, we would have had near riots in the theaters we'd shown <laughs> in the 70s. It was just so off the board. You know, forget it. No way. And for those listening at home, it should be stated that, you know, Dave's a tall guy. Must have been an intimidating <laughs> young man. An intense young man. Must have been the enforcer of otourism <laughs> on the University of Chicago campus. Sure, there are a lot of Paulettes out there gunning for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. My my happy maybe they're more solipsistic. I mean, but mm -hmm. I remember being home once on a vacation, you know, and sort of you know watching television and just coming across Touch of Evil, you know, like late at night on TV, a movie that I had never heard of, and there it was, you know, and being completely knocked out by this, and then being able to go back up to. Being gonna look, you know, in the up, oh, it was there, found it in a catalog, like got to see it on a big screen. That was very, that was that was a wonderful thing, with an audience that that also seemed to like it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I don't have any proper campus film society experience. I ran something called the Wright State University Cinematheque mm -hmm. during uh, during my time in Fairborn, Ohio, which uh, the entire premise of it was a good friend of mine, Mike Buell, had the key to the. Uh, classroom where we had all of our Mopix classes. He was the cage guy who worked in the uh, equipment rental. So we'd go in midweek on midnights and uh, get wacky on booze and uh, watch such films as Miss Vilma's Christmas Special and Crippled Masters and just absolute abject garbage, mostly on like 10th generation VHS dupes gotten from highly dubious sources i can't say that it probably made me a much more intelligent person <laughs> uh, but it certainly gave me a great deal of pleasure yeah that's kind of all that matters <laughs> it's just uh, solipsistic as jim says yeah it's fine solipsistic pleasures yeah my favorite memory was we wanted to show the 3d porn that was made this 3d porn that was like made in 1985 we couldn't do it because we would get in trouble with the with our funding body. So we didn't, but we did go on many trips to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest two years. I went and um, you spend your spring break watching like five, six movies a day in Austin, Texas, and you feel pretty cool. So that was a, that's my fun little story. Yeah. I mean, I, if, if there's any takeaway for me, I was very touched by a concept which is put across by one of the fellows that I interviewed, Sheldon Renan of Pacific Film uh, Archive and various other affiliations. This idea of, as he puts it, a cinema nostra, the idea of any town that you go to, there's going to be one person who knows what's up. Yeah. Like, which is still to this day something that I find to be truly touching and pleasurable about membership in this union of sick souls that is cinephilia is that you can be lost in the jungle in like deepest Sri Lanka and you can yell out Bresson <laughs> and some guy's going to come out of the bush like, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's not going to be a ton of people, but be it Lawrence, Kansas, uh, Buenos Aires or wherever, you can find somebody usually who keeps the uh, keeps the flame going yeah 
And I and I have to say, like that's your note of uplift. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and also just the fact that you know when you're in college, being away from parents for the first time, you know, it is really exciting to just like. I remember going to film study classes early so I could just hang out and talk to people because it was so exciting to just meet people who were super into movies. And I lived in a dorm room where it was all girls and they're all loved love actually. And I felt very alone. And then I could go to the, you know these classes and like get, just get really into the nitty gritty with people. And like, oh, I'm not crazy. I'm not a weirdo. This is, it is weird, but it's fine. You know, it's like, okay, it's like, it's very edifying to, to share something with people. And that's ultimately what cinema is. So to, again, to your point, sort of bring it to just people alone, or maybe with <laughs> one or two friends watching stuff in their house, not as, um, as uplifting, but before we close, it would be great if we could each go around and say a film that we've seen recently that we liked. So I saw BPM and I have to say, it sounds like a film that is really made for awards, right? Because it's this, it, it shows the story of the ACT UP group in Paris, France, you know, ACT UP, the great activist, AIDS activism group where, you know, they would break into pharmaceutical companies, uh, basically very aggressively agitate for better health care, better care period for people with AIDS at the height of the AIDS crisis. It was very very beautifully made it did not feel like a stodgy uh historical made for words epic and i highly encourage everyone to see this film because it is just a really incredible and dynamic and moving portrait of something that's really important to care about and i think another thing that understanding the urgency of the need of care is something that's i think people have probably forgotten it really puts you in that time and it's great I'll briefly put in a word for for those in New York, the wonderful series of Aiden Hour era German sort of pop films that uh, pop and maybe social problem pictures that are coming to the Film Society of Lincoln Center, which is a condensation of a terrific retrospective that was at Locarno last year, and in particular a film called Schwarzer Kies, I believe, I believe I'm getting that right, or Black Gravel, which the best way I know how to describe it is the West German equivalent of Imamira's Pigs and Battleships. Mm -hmm. Similarly, it takes place in the immediate orbit of a U.S. Armed Forces base <laughs> and looks at the rampant graft, prostitution, double dealing and the general duplicity that uh, comes out of the black market industry serving the base. I think it's a really strong movie, very, very unflinchingly nasty, extremely spryly put together. And I mean, I should hope those who aren't in New York should be able to dig it up somewhere or another. Uh, but it was seeing it uh, restored at Berlin this year was one of the highlights of my film going this year. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the series ain't too shabby either. I'll put a plug in for Craig Zoller's Brawl in Cell Block 99. <laughs> a very good genre film at a time when uh, those are kind of rare. It's stylistically very accomplished. It moves from a very classical balanced mise-en-scene into some really crazy gothic stuff. 
extremely violent, extremely controlled at the same time. And uh, yeah, I'm really impressed with that. We're going to be running it again at the museum Thanksgiving week. I can't remember quite what night, but if you're in New York City, take a chance and see it. Uh, well, I haven't seen that much stuff that's new in the past few weeks. And what I have seen has been um, uh, a lot of things that uh, that I'm familiar with for one reason or another. But I would put a plug in for this Icarus uh, Jean Rouge boxed set, oh, yeah. which... Um, has movies that are generally hard to see really well restored. I mean, you know, he was shooting in amateur formats, mm-hmm. color formats, and they, they look great. And I'm thinking particularly of of uh, Jaguar and uh, the Lion Hunters, which I hadn't mm-hmm. seen in years and years. And they, they to me, they look even better now uh, in the way that they were thrown together out of these short takes and years in the making and throwing a soundtrack on to like make the whole thing make sense. I mean, I think they're they're really uh, terrific. And I, I was in Paris. They have they have three museum shows devoted to him. And in one they have like his little bell and howl camera in a in a vitrine, you know, like a like a, a sacred thing. And uh, it was it was it was really moving to see that. I mean, you know, that this guy made these features, you know, uh, out you know, uh, uh, in the countryside, in the bush with this, with this little camera. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comet, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>